Well, hey, friend, welcome to Java with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. This podcast is listener supported and it's an outreach of Authentic Intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to helping people make sense of God and sexuality. While pornography has become so normal in our world, we have just accepted it as if it's a fact of life. Many men and women get hooked, developing a true sexual addiction. For most individuals and couples, this sexual addiction is somewhat of a secret and is rarely addressed until there's a crisis. And even then, there might be a stumbling journey of promises, getting help, and then relapse. This cycle has a devastating impact on a person's relationship with God and his or her relationships, particularly in marriage. What does it look like to actually find freedom? How can a marriage be restored after decades of this kind of deceit and half-hearted steps towards recovery? Well, that's where we're headed today in my conversation with Phil and Priscilla Fretwell. They are the founders of Savage Marriage Ministries. Now, this is a very candid conversation that I think you're going to find riveting. And honestly, it really applies to any longstanding sin that we might have in our lives. Phil and Priscilla's journey shows us how only the power of God and true repentance can break cycles of bondage and deceit. Well, Phil and Priscilla, thanks so much for being willing to share very openly your story. Your ministry is called the Savage Marriage, is that right? The Savage Marriage Ministries. Yeah, and savage is a pretty direct word. Yeah, pretty aggressive. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I know. Why did you choose savage? Well. (laughs) It it really wasn't us because it was our youngest son who came up with the title because our title would have been very boring. Yeah. I think. uh, Yeah, we we were, this was like four or five years ago. We were just coming through a lot of our story and we felt really led to start some small groups. And so our son, Michael said, so what are you going to name them? And we were coming up with some really terrible words like oneness in marriage or something. And he was going, oh, like authentic intimacy. Yeah, no, he would have probably liked that one. (laughs) But he goes, oh, dad, that is so terrible. You know, you are so, what did he say? You are so 90s or something like that, right? And so we said, all right, what would you name it? And he said, savage marriage. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is aggressive. So we picked it with the kind of slang, uber cool type version of it. But, you know, as time has gone by, it's come to mean other things, though, mm-hmm. is that, and really what we have found is that people trying to come out of a betrayal or an addiction situation, they underestimate the level of effort it will take and the level, level of surrender it will take. Mm. We've discovered how much it takes as it yeah. goes along. And so... It takes a lot of tenacity mm. yeah. to say, we're, we're going to fight through this. We're going to get, not fight with each other. We're going to fight what has happened and, you know, push through. And there's going to be a difference here. Yeah. We're not going to be the same. Yeah. yeah. When I think of the word savage, I think of not just you say aggressive, but it's like raw untamed, messy, yeah, like warfare, I'm sure. And then also even just like that we internally are savages without Christ. Yes. You know, like yeah. um, when you unpack that word, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's all part of your story. It is part of our story. Yeah. And um, it's come to mean a lot more now than it did at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. Yeah. Over the course of the last, like, 10 years of doing this podcast, I've had the chance to sit down with probably a dozen couples like you all who have Mm -hmm. been through some kind of betrayal, addiction, pornography. And 
everybody's story has some overlap, but there's always uniqueness. Mm. And, you know, God is so individual in the way that he brings about healing that I love to just hear people's journeys and stories. And I was, as I was listening to your story preparing, I'm like, wow, I can't wait to talk to this couple. So um, let's back way up to when you guys first were married. From what I can understand, you, you kind of were the picture perfect Christian couple. We were. So Priscilla, you're a missionary's kid. <laughs> missionary's kid. Yes. Grew up in the church, followed all the right rules, right? Did everything my parents asked and, um, you know, went to church, did the whole church thing. And, you know, we just, just perfect Christian girl, you uh-huh. know, doing everything right. And you met Phil at a like you really got to know him through a Bible study, is that right? Well, uh, I met him at a Christmas dinner uh-huh. at church, and that's where our friendship started. Yeah, it was there. Yeah, I met her. I liked her, but see, she had come to the U.S. for her sister's wedding. Uh-huh. Her sister called off her wedding, and her and Priscilla was going back to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And I liked her, but I was thinking, I don't want a four thousand mile relationship. That's ridiculous. So, but then she got bumped off her flight, and mm-hmm. she called her dad and said. What should I do? And he said, maybe God has something for you in the U.S. Why don't you get a job and see what it is? Mm. So when I heard she was there, that was like in February, that she hadn't flown back to Brazil, I I asked her out. We started dating. We dated about five months. Uh, we went to Brazil, met our parents, and then we got married 12 weeks later. Wow, that's quick. It was. Yeah, yeah. and so were you the perfect Sunday school Christian guy, too. Well, On the looked, outside. He looked yeah. like it. <laughs> <laughs> I was a knight in shining armor with a few dents uh-huh. <laughs> that had been undisclosed. No, you know, I grew up, uh, my family was churchgoers. Uh, I would not say we knew who knew Christ. I became a Christian at 21 mm-hmm. in college. But then from 21 till 27, I, I did. I was really trying to endeavor uh, to lead a Christian life. But I had this huge history of porn and masturbation that mm. had started when I was 11 or 12. And my really coincided with my dad leaving our family for another woman. He remarried three days later. Mm. Really created a big hole for me emotionally. Mm. I didn't know all this then. I'm now figuring it out, right? But porn and masturbation filled that. And so, you know, promiscuity in high school and some, some in college and stuff, stuff like, so a very typical story of many guys today. But at 21, I now had the experience of shame. Mm. Uh, shame entered the picture. And then so from 21 to 27, now I have a different story. I'm still struggling with sin, but now I struggle. I don't enjoy it anymore. Now I've met Priscilla, who looks like Miss Perfect. Mm-hmm. Christian woman, and I know that she would not approve of this lifestyle, so I don't share it with her. So during the dating, engagement, early marriage, she knows nothing. She knows nothing. Yeah. Now, I did tell her I wasn't a virgin because I thought she needed to know that. But all the other stuff, I said, you know, the past is in the past. Why are we going to talk about that? It's not going to help the situation. Yeah. Not to get into TMI here, but... You can get into TMI. It's okay. (laughs) What was... What was was intimacy like early in your marriage where you had this secret, she knows nothing about it, you're coming into marriage kind of as the quote-unquote good girl? How did that play out? Yeah, why don't you you share? (laughs) Well, um, how did that play out? Well, I... 
My whole background when it comes, you mean you're talking about intimacy, right? Okay. The whole way it played out is I had no understanding of it, Mm -hmm. okay, because that was not talked about in our family. Okay, my mom never said anything about it. Whatever education I got on sexuality was based on the playground and HBO movies, Mm -hmm. and that was my understanding, right? So I come into the marriage, and that is what... You know, this is what is supposed to be done. And then on the other hand, too, what I hear from the pulpit is that this is your duty. Oh, You know, like this is what you're supposed to do as a wife. So never, ever, never having an understanding of what this all means as in our relationship together. It's more of a service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing for you. No, um... Well, you, you even felt like there was a third person in yeah, the bedroom, Yeah, right? I did, because uh, I did feel like there was a third person in the bedroom because the things that I had uh, I had seen in my, you know, growing up, because I came to the States, I was in high school and went to college and stuff. So the stuff that I had um, been involved in, uh, this is what I had seen, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah. and I had, I had memories of the stuff. Of pornography? Of porn in Uh my head and of movies and how Uh they played out. So when we were together, that's why we always felt like there was a third party with us. Mm -hmm. Then from from my standpoint, I had unreasonable expectations that were unfilled with Priscilla, right? Mm -hmm. Because porn had been my tutor. Masturbation had made me very self-centered in my Mm -hmm. sexuality. And I, I felt that there were expectations that I was not coming through with. Mm-hmm. You know? But you didn't have open conversation about any of this. No. It was all zero. kind of subtext. Yes, it was. Uh-huh. It yeah. was like, we're not talking about this. Which I think describes a lot of couples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've got that dynamic going on or something like that. And they both kind of know there's something weird there, but they have no idea how to start talking about it. Right. Uh-huh. And, and you know, I didn't want to start talking about it because I never told him the stuff that I had seen mm-hmm. and what I had participated in. So if I were to ask him, he was going to ask me. Yeah. And me being the good Christian girl, there's no way I'm going to share this with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so my experience, so I'm, I'm there trying to be intimate with Priscilla, but I still got images floating around in my head, other thoughts, uh, thoughts of other women and all this type of stuff. And it's the type of thing that guys guys just live with. And they think, I'm never going to tell her that, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that will absolutely destroy her. So, you know, we feel like sometimes those early years, you know, I'd say those years up till seven years ago, it's like the first 28 years of our marriage, it was like group sex. Mm. Her, me, and all the images in our mind. 28 right? years, that's a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. And. You were in the church this whole time. I mean, we're going to unpack some of that, but you're you're kind of the normal Christian couple, and probably not even just normal. You were in leadership, yeah, an elder. Mm-hmm. So you're describing what a lot of people are living with, yes. right? Uh huh. Right. Sort of the first brick of this wall started to to crumble a few years into your marriage, yeah. around a call from a video store right. <laughs> way back when yeah. there were video stores. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back then. But yeah, the, the video store called and asked if I had rented this movie. I said, no, mm-hmm. I wasn't even here this weekend. So uh, no, I didn't. Let me ask my husband. And so I called him at work and there was just a pause and I'll be right home. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just like, okay, that's not normal. That's not Phil, mm-hmm. you know? So I knew something was up when he said, I'll be home and just 
give me 15 minutes, I'll be home. Well, when I got the call, it's the call all guys hate to get, right? You've mm-hmm. been caught. And up until that point, that was 10 years into our marriage, I had been still an occasional user of porn, masturbation, but she had no idea and mm-hmm. had never discovered any of that. But when they called, I knew that the roost was up and I had to go home. And so I went home. I confessed. I was sad because she had caught me <laughs> primarily, right? Because I knew this would be terrible for her. And she was super upset. I didn't know what to do, but I did kind of what all Christian guys do. They go out and hire the best counselor they can. Mm. We agreed uh, to keep it all quiet. So nobody would ever know besides her, me, and a counselor. And uh, I went to counseling for five and a half years. And at some point, I thought, you know, this is the best I can do. Mm. Let me stop you right there. We'll pick up on on the story in a little bit. When you said that what all Christian guys do, that's not necessarily true. A lot of Christian guys do nothing. Well, that's true. And so the fact that you immediately said, hey, I'll go find a counselor and meet with a counselor Mm -hmm. for five years. I also understand... You did some other things like put accountability software on your devices and you got an accountability partner, which, mm-hmm. hey, you know, you did all the right things. Yeah. You know, when, when somebody says as a wife, like, what do I have my husband do if I caught him looking at porn? You know, check, check, check. You know, like. I, I did the things that yeah. you could do. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me go back to you, Priscilla. What was that like 10 years into your marriage to discover that your Christian husband, who's an elder, who's respected in the church, has a secret that he's never told you? I was pretty shocked by it. And at the same time, I I really felt like I wasn't good enough. Mm. That this whole thing of me having all these doubts and uh, insecurities sexually, that there must be something that I'm doing, that I'm not meeting the standard that needs to be met. You know, I don't look the way they look. I don't, I, you know, mm-hmm. it's just something's wrong with me, mm-hmm. which I will tell you, I mean, I felt like that my whole life when it comes to my sexuality, there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. You know, because when, you, when no one talks about it, you must say, is this normal? Yeah. You know? So uh, it was very, um, I had a lot of anger uh, with Phil over that. And he, um, he even mentioned quite a few times in those years of how much he was walking on eggshells with me mm-hmm. because it would just abrupt and just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot. So of, you had a lot of competing feelings. You were yes. anger, angry towards him. Oh, yeah. A and lot of anger. I was bitter, just very. Uh, shame too. Shame mm-hmm. that you know I don't I don't meet the expectation. I'm mm-hmm. not the wife I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Though I feel like I'm doing everything I can to be. And did you have any help through that? No. So you were managing this all by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, we didn't tell anybody, not a single soul, mm-hmm. that this was going on. It was. We were so ashamed of it all. You had an accountability partner, Jeff, I think. Yeah. 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 He knew about it? He did. I had known him before. We had a relationship, but it was one of those religious relationships where you get together and study the Bible, right? Yeah. And so this... this <laughs> you study the Bible, you don't talk about You don't talk things. about what's going on in the inside. You just talk about what the text means. Mm, that's and, safe. Yeah, it's very safe. And so this caused me to push that relationship to a different level. Mm-hmm. And he was very receptive to that. And... um 
and a good friend, continues to be a good friend. And so I, w- I was doing things like that. But yeah, I, mean, I would say we were isolating. We isolated from people, yeah. though it didn't look like isolation. It was very much like we're an island and we're not going to let anyone know mm-hmm. who we really are. Yeah. Everybody's at arm's length. Yeah. How long would you say in your marriage, you know, from the, the day the video store called until sort of the next piece of this unfolded, did you live in that tension of he's getting help, he's got accountability, you're dealing with your shame and anger? How long did that last? Uh, 17 years. <laughs> 17 years. Yeah. 17 years. I lived, uh, I lived in a, a pit of isolation, unforgiveness, just fear, overwhelming fear. Fear of? Fear of everything and anything. You know, I would, uh, I would even have uh, thoughts of, you know, of getting an envelope with pictures of him and somebody else. You know mm-hmm. how you see in, sometimes in the movies, yeah. you know, all of a sudden you open it up and it's like, you know, just living in constant fear. But I couldn't, but the fear even transferred to the places I, I couldn't even make a decision on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it was just total domination of fear and anger and um, bitterness and, unfor- you know, it was all just a big mess mm. of stuff in my life. Mm. What did you What did you look like on the outside? Like oh, if perfect. you were my friend, I went to your church. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because, I mean, people did not know. I would tell them I had an anger problem and they would go, you, you know? But uh, no, I, I, looked, I looked fine. I wore a really good mask mm-hmm. of how things were going. And I think that only a close friend would, and I'm thinking of one close friend that I had at that time, would have known that I was not a, a happy camper inside. Mm. Did you understand what was, what was causing the unhappiness? Like, were you aware of it? Or was it like almost like a spiritual flu where you have all these symptoms and you're not really sure where it's coming from? Right. That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. I just felt this all the time and didn't know what to how to deal with it. And the and the more time the more there was time, right, in this like 17 years, you know, whatever, it could have kept going. Mm-hmm. And I had just pushed it down so far that on towards the end of the 17 years I was fine. He wasn't fine, but I was fine. Mm. You know. So let me ask you if someone at that time, during those 17 years, had introduced you to something like Java with Julie, and you would have heard these kinds of conversations, what would have, what would have happened inside of you? Would you be like, I don't need that? or I would probably have said, you know, there's someone, someone is finally saying what I feel, mm-hmm. or what has crossed my mind, or where I'm at. You know, someone is finally being honest with sexuality, that, that we are broken. Mm. And that God wants to come in and heal. Mm. So there's something wrong with me. And I know that that sexual aspect was huge for us. Mm. Mm. So you felt very broken, but no safe place to say it out loud. Right. Mm. Well, I can see how much that impacts you even today. Mm. Mm. And how about you, Phil? What, What was that 17 years like for you? Well, the first five and a half years was me just trying to fix a problem, and I didn't know how to fix it. Uh, I was going through counseling, trying to, but see, I defined the problem as the behavior. I had no clue that 
the behavior starts with fantasies, starts with thoughts, starts with feelings, all this type of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So when you define it as a behavior, then handcuffs look good, right? Because mm-hmm. then you can't you can't have the behavior. And so that's what a lot of the 17 years was. It was a struggle with the behavior rather than the desire. And I didn't think I could be free from the lust and the in- internal turmoil of all this, right? Mm-hmm. So the best I could do was manage the behavior. And that's what I really focused on. But as that 17 years happened, the porn, what started with porn and masturbation eventually turned into going to massage parlors and real women. Mm. And so I crossed a line that I just always sworn I would never cross because mm. my dad had been married seven times and mm. I desperately didn't want to turn out like him. Mm. So and, Phil, when you were in that counseling for five and a half years, was there a time where you were sober, where you weren't acting out and you felt like, well, I've got this handled? Yeah, but between acting out, uh, <laughs> that was it. Was that like a one day sober? It, it, it or? could have been months. Uh huh. Okay, could have been a few weeks. But you felt like you were making progress. I did, but I always felt like I was almost like on on a clock, like it's a tick, 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 and I'm trying to extend the cycles. Mm-hmm. But I was still on the clock, mm-hmm. and eventually the bell would ring, mm-hmm. and and to believe that I could ever be free from this like Mm -hmm. forever, was just something I I couldn't really even imagine. Mm -hmm. So the best I could do was kind of not act out frequently. Mm -hmm. But then as time went by, I started losing that battle too, and -hmm. it got worse and worse. Yeah. So when you look back on your first efforts, the counseling, the Mm -hmm. accountability, the software, I understand you even did things like when you traveled, you asked Priscilla to look at your receipts so that you weren't buying anything on hotel TVs, like you went through all, again, the motions that a ministry would prescribe to you. Why didn't it work? What was missing? I think that I was still living uh, in a lot of pride that demanded that I keep the real gut level stuff a big secret. Mm -hmm. Because even with my counselor, I didn't tell him everything. Because he is, it's amazing. Even in a counseling situation, I desired to be admired by the counselor. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell him enough that it looks like I'm making good progress. But some of the gut level stuff, some of the real hooks inside of me that would continue to take me back to bad thinking, bad behaviors, I wasn't servicing a lot of that stuff because of the shame. So you're paying a counselor for over five years. That's right. And you're asking for help. Yeah. But you really don't want it. Well, I want help, but I don't want to really expose who I am. So you want to be fixed without having to go through pain. Yeah, I want kind of pain-free healing is basically what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you feel like your counselor was ever getting closer to knocking on that door? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes. And what would you do? I would protect, mm-hmm. uh, shut down. I would share enough so it looks like I'm making good progress, that he would still conclude that I'm a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, made some mistakes, but I'm a good guy. I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. And what was your relationship with, with the Lord like at this time? It was, I would say, very uh, intellectual, very academic. So when I became a Christian and like got active in a church, I did what I knew. I knew that I would pursue it academically. That always worked with me. And so I pursued it. I, I did a lot like that, with trying to understand and know the Bible. And then when I got into a church, it's like a job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the right thing so I can move up. And so, you know, like move up. 
which sounds so ridiculous right now, but it was part of the religiosity, right? Because I wanted to be admired by people in their church mm -hmm. and other people. We wanted to be seen as the perfect Christian family. And that's really what I geared it around. I geared our kids around that and everything else. But that was part of my persona. Mm -hmm. So it was all about performance. It was performance, admiration of man, pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what stopped the 17-year lull? Well, we got down to the end, and I was getting to a place I really hated my life. Mm. I felt... I don't know that I would say I was suicidal, but I remember telling you, Priscilla, one time that, you know, if I died, it'd, it'd be okay. You guys would be better off with me. And I, I just didn't really feel like I had much to live for. And I really started crying out to God for help. I didn't know what that looked like. I just knew that for 17 years, I had tried to get some help. I didn't know inside of me what else I needed to do. I didn't understand humility, I, none of that stuff. I just knew I needed healing. So I started crying out for that. And about three months later, I thought I had contracted a sexually transmitted disease. Mm. Now, I hadn't, mm -hmm. but I thought I had, mm -hmm. which I will tell you, Julie, when I started thinking that, boy, that struck terror in my heart because all this time I was willing to sacrifice her emotional health, but I knew I couldn't sacrifice her physical health because the kids would know they might disown me. My whole world would crash down. Mm. So I knew that I had to tell her. Mm. And, and and in this 17-year mm -hmm. period of time, did she have any idea that that you were still acting out, still struggling? And not that I had told her, but you were having dreams. Yeah. During those 17 years, I would periodically have dreams of we were together, but he would be talking to another woman with me right there mm -hmm. and engaging in conversation and being flirtatious. And I'm like, I'm right here. Like, how can mm. you be doing this when I'm standing right next to you? Wow. And I would wake up and I would, oh man, I would be so angry. Yeah. And I would, I would always say, ah, I had that dream again. You know? Wow. <laughs> what did that feel like to you? Well, I just, I just say, I have only eyes for you, honey. I mean, I just, I just. But what's lie. happening on the inside? Yeah, I'm just like, oh man, what is going on with her in these dreams? You yeah, know? God is revealing through yeah, dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, but I, I would always lie. I would reassure her, tell her she's just insecure, and I'm right here, mm -hmm. you know, and all that. What type of What stuff. was your relationship like during this time, and what was your sexual relationship like? I would say our sexual relationship was perfunctory. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Priscilla did not refuse me often, and um, but you know, she was not. I didn't see her as engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, you never initiated. No, it was always me. And, and I wouldn't even do anything to give him the thought that I wanted to initiate. Mm -hmm. You know, like, just like. It was all just, I have to do this because right. I'm a good wife. Right. Yeah. And so that meant she would be reluctant to maybe mm -hmm. spontaneously give me a hug or a kiss or because she thinks she would send me a message. Mm -hmm. That hug or that kiss means more than just good morning. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's a lot of how it, how it was. But our day-to-day -day relationship was actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, we enjoy one another. We do things together. We had great kids. Um, so, you know, you would look at just the day-to-day -day operating, and you would say, they're actually doing okay. Mm -hmm. It's just that she doesn't know that I've got this undercurrent of sexual immorality that's creating a war inside my soul. Wow. That's a long time to live isolated like that. It is. And to have kind of the front to everyone and even to each other that you're not dying inside. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm.
Well, I'm just jumping in for a minute to let you know that Reclaim is only a week and a half away. If you haven't heard about it, Reclaim is our three-day virtual conference designed to help couples reclaim God's design for sex in their marriage. And it's coming up on February 15th. The conference will feature experts like Dr. Michael Seitzma and Dr. Jennifer Degler, keynote sessions with me, live Q&As, and testimonies from other couples who are seeing God move through them and in their marriages. We're going to cover topics like recovering from violations of trust, sexual differences, and how to build intimacy. And there's going to be something for everyone, whether you're new to marriage or have been married for decades. If you're tracking with Phil and Priscilla's story, Reclaim 2.0 might just be your best next step to learn how to pursue true sexual intimacy. So don't miss it. You can register through the link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to my interview with the Fretwells. And so you confess to her that you think you have an STD? Well, I did eventually, but that wasn't the very first thing, right? So when I figure this out, I know that I've got to tell her, but I am terrified of telling her. And so I've got to take this trip to uh, the Middle East, and I get on this plane, and I um, get on the plane, door shuts, and I'm sitting there. And I kind of manage this problem, knowing I had to tell her when I get back. But when the door shut, and I was left there just by myself sitting in the seat, it's just like it all crashed, you know. Mm. It all starts crashing because I know that when I get back, I'm going to have to tell her and my whole life's going to change. And Mm -hmm. so I started crying. Mm. And I cried for five hours. Mm. And I couldn't stop. And I didn't know what to do. And I I finally reached out to a good buddy of mine that I had been the best man in my wedding, Christian guy, you know, known him since seventh grade. And and I reached out to him. And and he knew I kind of struggled with porn, but it's the kind of struggle that all Christian guys talk about. You know, it's like... I struggled. Yeah, I struggled too. And so you kind lunch. of give each other a pass. Yeah, you mm-hmm. get, yeah, you don't want to ask hard questions, you know. And but he answered the phone. He I called him on Wi-Fi. He called and he answered and he said, "Hey, what's up?" And I, I just spilled it all out, hundred percent. And he said, "Well, I know one guy that's been able to help people with this on a sustained basis. I'm going to get him to call you." So this guy named Paul Speed with Whatever It Takes Ministry called me, and he, he. Um, ran out his story in about five minutes, which was similar. And then he listened to mine, and he said, Phil, he said, um, he said, you think you have an immorality problem, but you have a big pride problem, and your pride problem is at the root of your issues. Mm. And you've never let anybody know who you are or see the real you, and you're going to break the back of your pride by letting them know, and you're going to start with your wife. But you're not going to end there because you're going you're gonna to tell all your kids, and you're going to share with just about everybody you've been a hypocrite to and have affected Wow. And it was like, I don't know, the Holy Spirit. And he said, Phil, because uh, God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And I don't know, it's just, Julie, right then, I got like a whole retreat mm-hmm. <laughs> in like 10 minutes with Paul, and the Holy Spirit just told me, that has been my issue. Mm. And and I told him, you're right, and I'm going to start when I get home. So I did this trip, came home. And sat down with Priscilla and had the hardest conversation I've ever had with her. Mm. If you had heard that same message 17 years earlier, could you have received it? I don't know. I, you know, I was at a place of desperation, mm-hmm. and I was des. I knew that I couldn't manage the problem. Mm-hmm. 
I'm a very, I can be a very self-sufficient person, and that's what I've been for 17 years, right? Mm-hmm. But I had reached the point that I knew I could not manage this problem anymore. Mm-hmm. As you're telling that story, I read this one description of Romans 6, 7, and 8 that I think describes what you went through. It's like Romans 6 talks about this battle between who you're going to be mastered by, your mm-hmm. sin nature or the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 7 is this like this Christian who is trying to please God in the flesh, which you were trying to do for yeah. 17 years mm-hmm. until Paul is like, I can't do this, so wretched man that I am. And then Romans 8 is about like the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it sounds like you live that. And I think a lot of Christians live that, whether the struggle is sexual sin or some other sin. God had, has to get us to the place where he brings us to the end of our flesh, like the end of our trying. Mm-hmm. Because what Paul Spee recommended to you is pretty radical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was because... You know, I think he prefaced it with something like, uh, there's a way out. Mm. And I said, and he goes, but it doesn't involve any of your accountability partners or your counselors or your apps on your phone. And I said, that's good. I did all that stuff. Like, if he had told me that, I would have said. It doesn't work. I did all that. It didn't work for me. But he didn't tell me that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he told me something that was really so radical and uh, that it really got my attention. And that's basically what we ended up doing. Mm. And, uh, you know, I walked through with Priscilla, all our kids. um, So let's talk about that big Mm -hmm. conversation you had with Priscilla. Did you know it was coming? No. No, I did not. I was actually uh, ready for him to come home and, you know, have duty sex and, you know, have reentry sex is what we call it. And, you know, so I, when he came, when he walked through and he had this look on his face though, and he, he, he picked up my hand and I saw the look in his eyes and I said, he's done something, Mm. you know, and we walked to the table and we sat down and, and he just shared with me how he had been living a double life Mm. and, uh, he, he, been doing that for a long time in our marriage, and it, you know, we both just broke down, and I, I got really angry at him, and uh, there was a lot of screaming, and and it was it was a big a big storm mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. happened in that kitchen that morning. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that wasn't that long ago. No, it was seven years ago, mm-hmm. and he says he still does. He still cannot forget me in the kitchen. Yeah, what do you remember? Well, you know, I remember her um, stamping her feet, screaming, yelling at me. The look on her face, the disappointment in her eyes. I had a look of disgust. A look of disgust. But you know, it's it's a weird thing, Julie. In all those feel, all, all those thoughts of massage parlors and stuff like that, that used to attach to pleasure. It doesn't any longer. Mm. It attaches to her in the kitchen, Mm. screaming and yelling. Mm. Mm. And that's what I think about now Mm. is the level of pain and uh, that she had to go through during that time. And I caused it. Mm. I I caused it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is in some way sort of a necessary step in the healing process where you as the one who's been betrayed feels legitimately angry 
and uh, you've got to feel that. And you as the one who has broken your vows to feel ashamed, some couples stay there. A lot of couples stay there. Even if they stay married, many get divorced, but even if they stay married, say that it's, let's presume it's the woman who's in your situation, Priscilla, just stays angry, self-righteous, bitter, and the man feels like, I can never get out of the bad box. And, you know, like, I've done all these horrible things. I don't know how to atone for them. How long did you stay there? After he told me everything? Um, well, um, right when he told me that, that day about what he had been living through, he also told me about a retreat that I could go to, right? And, um, and it was with Whatever It Takes Ministries. Uh, it's for, for women, and it's called Four Days to Hope. And so anyway, he said, there's a place that you can go to get help for women who are going through this trauma like you are right now. And, you know, I, I kind of said, you know, I, if I can get away from you, I will go anywhere. <laughs> that kind of thing is like, I get four days without you, yes, I'll go. And um, so that was five days after he mm. came clean, is what, what we call coming clean. Um, I went there to Georgia mm-hmm. and uh, in, in a cabin with other women who had gone through similar things. And um, so then I would say six months later, I think that we were kind of like on the upswing yeah. of, you know, seeing that we were had walked through this whole mess. And there was still pain, mm-hmm. right? There was still um, going back and talking about things and crying and, mm-hmm. you know, just discussing things of how this harmed us or even the pain that happened even prior to that, you know. So I would say around six months later, we were like, okay, we're breathing now. Mm-hmm. You know? What happened in that four-day retreat that kind of set you on the right path? Well, um, I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest thing for me, so I, you know, I went there to fix Phil. He said, can you go there Can just to help me, help heal my mind? And I go, okay, I'll go. So mm-hmm. I went there thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm coming here to heal Phil. Mm-hmm. Right, he needs the healing. He's the problem, mm-hmm. and um, and so being there in that mountain with all these women and hearing all their stories and then walking through their their curriculum or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, sitting there, I realized that God had He told me sitting there listening to the part of forgiveness. Right, it was during the forgiveness section and God said, I brought you here to heal you. And that was like the first time here I had been a Christian all my life. You know, I received the Lord when I was six, the church stuff. And this is like the first time I hear God speaking to me and saying, I brought you here to fix you. And that is when I realized that I had looked at forgiveness in a way that was not of forgiveness, you know? You know how people say forgive and forget, you know, all that stuff. They We have mm-hmm. all these different things that we say about forgiveness, and they're not ever, like, 
going to happen. But um, that's where I realized that God had forgiven me of everything that I have done. Because, see, my whole life, I had... I was looking like a Christian, but I was a hypocrite, and I was also apathetic towards God. Mm. God was not in my—God was like way back in the bus, you know? I'll mm. call you when I need you. You know, it's an emergency. Okay, let me call God. But uh, God was not the first thing in my life. And when I saw His—when I saw how much He had forgiven me, so how could I not forgive him? Mm. That's what I took away from that retreat. Wow. Because I had lived in rebellion for 50-some years mm. of my life. Mm. And you never really saw that until no. that retreat. That's right. Mm. I mean, nobody could have told you that. That had to come, that had to <laughs> no. come from the Lord. <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you go to church every Sunday. Who's going to tell you that? Yeah. You know, yeah, and um, but mm. that—that's when I realized I came back, I came back home from that retreat, and no, everything was not perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was the beginning of seeing what God could do because I—I ha I had received His forgiveness, mm. and um, and mm. He and He tells us to forgive, right? Yeah, forgive one another. And I was like looking at Phil, and it it took it it took probably I think around six months. Uh, but, you know, every day in those six months, I would wake up and say, Lord, you've forgiven me, and I want to forgive Phil. Mm -hmm. Work this out in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, and one of the things they say at this retreat is, you know, you, you can live as a victim, or you can make a choice every day to live victorious by choosing forgiveness. Wow. And... Um, Mm. Uh, so anyway, that was mm. my lifeline. Yeah. Boy, that's beautiful. Yeah. And probably just the beginning of a deepening relationship with the Lord and yeah. so much of who He wanted you to become. Priscilla, probably so unexpected because you go to this retreat with, I would say, the superficial thought of, <laughs> I've been so wounded. I'm the good one. He's the bad one. And then the Lord ends up showing you the things that you need to confess. Yeah. Which is completely, probably not what you were thinking. No, it rocked my world. It really did. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. it's been an amazing, an amazing life with the Lord. Mm -hmm. One that I would, you know, I just thought it was just going to be, it's mm -hmm. almost like the life I look at that I have today compared to what we had in the 28 was so mediocre. Mm. So like nothing's happening with the Lord. It's just, mm. you know, go to church every Sunday, do your thing. Mm. And now I just see so much abundance in our life, in our marriage. Mm. And uh, we're just at a different place. Yeah. Mm. That's, odd. That's so obvious. When you went back home, I think that there's this tension of, God wants me to forgive Phil. He's humbling me. He's drawing me close to himself. But yet you have a husband who's been lying to you and cheating on you for a couple decades. And you can't immediately jump into intimacy. Like yeah. there's real things to be upset about and guarded about and to not trust. So how did you navigate that? I knew that I did not want to go into intimacy with Phil. And mm -hmm. I, I, I just could not do that. 
okay? And so when we, when we came, when I came home, I, we talked, and I said, you know, you can either take the guest room or we can make this king-size bed into a twin. Mm-hmm. And he chose imaginary the twi- twin. Imaginary <laughs> twin, yeah. And uh, he chose the twin, and uh, and you know it was fine. But you know we just there was just I needed like a reset button. Yeah, I just could not go in and do what we were doing before. It felt so perfunctory, so like lifeless, really. So much more. It was just like we're just going to do this, and you know. Check mm-hmm. it off the list because now we did it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was really it wasn't intimacy at all; it was sexual activity, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's what it was. But I it took it took a oh, well, it took over a hundred days, really. Mm-hmm. But in those hundred days, right, there was a different person that I was relating to. You saw a change in oh, him. Wow, I saw a big change in him. That mm-hmm. was not, and I thought at first. I was like, okay, this is going to last two weeks, mm-hmm. and then he'll be back to himself. And it wasn't. It was him taking, painstakingly taking time every day. He was journaling. He was writing things out. He would share things that God has impressed him to share with me. And they were things that were way back there in his life, and mm-hmm. that was not the feel that I knew. Mm-hmm. What was happening inside of you that perpetuated that change? Well, I— um you know, when she comes back from this retreat, I realize, man, God is doing, I thought he was just going to deal stuff with me. And now I see him dealing with Priscilla too, right? So I've got some real hope here. God's going to do something dramatic. So I'm writing uh, every day. We're getting up early. We're spending a lot of time together. Every day I'd write, uh, like I would write uh, day one of freedom, day two of freedom, day three of freedom. And I'd always write at the top of my journal, thank you, Lord, for another day of freedom. I just wanted to declare it in advance. This is what I'm living in today. Mm -hmm. And I did that for 1,768 days. And when you were counting these days of freedom, Mm -hmm. how did that feel different than before where you were just trying not to act out? And Yeah, God had really shown me the level of my own pride and hypocrisy. I had never seen it. I never understood how it affected me at the core, how it affected Priscilla, our kids, others around me. I just never saw it. And I was just a very proud and arrogant guy. And and that really caused me to want the whole family to revolve around me. Mm-hmm. And so all that ended up changing. And so God's just started peeling away layers and showing me really who I was. You know, I, I would say that my my time with God before Julie had been, I, I mentioned just very academic, right? Let's understand the words. Let's mm-hmm. see how they flow. And it's interesting. It's an interesting story. But he started showing me, really, there was kind of three main things he was trying to show me. Not necessarily what's the text on the page, but what is he going to show me about him? What's he going to show me about me? And what's he going to show me about Priscilla Mm -hmm. and others? And so it was kind of that three thing that I would write and think about every morning. And then Priscilla would get up, and we started processing our times together. And we had never, ever done that before. That was very new for us. And God ended up resetting our relationship, starting with spiritual intimacy first. And I realized I had never really been spiritually intimate with her. Mm-hmm. Never really that emotionally intimate, you know? If you'd asked me what intimacy means, I would have started with sexuality, mm-hmm. right? But I, what we started learning is it started really, I had to reset the order of intimacy. It needed to be spiritual first, let the spiritual flow into the emotional. And then I didn't know about the sexuality, 
I was prepared to wait five years. I didn't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. how long this would take. But and I'm guessing I've heard other men say this who've gone through similar things. There's a part of you that doesn't even want to reintegrate that again because it's tainted. Yeah, your whole experience of it has been. It's been a struggle. It's been a disappointment. It's been failure, mm-hmm. and it's hard to even envision how could that be good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we started getting through this. I started understanding that sex wasn't a need, mm-hmm. that I could live without it, which I never thought I could. Mm-hmm. And that became remarkable for me, really. Mm-hmm. And so it took us about 100 days before we started to reengage. Mm-hmm. And we didn't plan. It's not like we said it 100 days. It was very spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a different experience mm-hmm. for us and continues to be, I mm-hmm. would say, since then. Yeah, and I think a a lot of the things that we walked through and talked about were um, an area that we never had stepped into, Mm -hmm. okay? Like discussing what we like, what we don't like, discussing maybe things that were said or maybe suggestions. I mean, it's it's kind of painful to walk in that, right? It's intimacy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's awkward. It's painful. It's kind of like, but we got to talk about this because it was never— it was never great for me, mm-hmm. you know? And so if it wasn't great for me, was it great for you? Well, I felt like you weren't a part of it, mm-hmm. you know? There was a lot of conversation that was, you know, mm-hmm. an area we hadn't gone into, and it was yeah. tough. Yeah, yeah, Well, you have a ministry now that is helping couples go on a similar path that you've gone on. And if you've got a couple that's, say, 30 years old, and they're back to where you were at your first confession. How do you get them to the place where they really are humble before the Lord and they are able to build intimacy instead of having to spend those 17 years kind of like doing, going through the motions of healing without ever experiencing it? Yeah, well, it's funny. We've approached this several different ways over the last five years that we've been doing this. And what we have found is that when we meet with a couple the first time, if we will share our story, and we share it in quite a lot of detail. And, uh, you know, most of that's in the book, but sometimes we'll share other little things that's not in the book, and we let them see our own pain. One thing we'll pray is we'll say, God, help us, help us remember the pain. Mm. Help us relive the pain. Help them see where we were and what God has done. Mm-hmm. And because if you don't know where you were, it's hard to appreciate where God took you, right? Yeah. And it's not that we revel in the back. It's just that we want them to see it and identify with it. And so we'll always do that. So we do that with small groups that we're in and everything else. We've just found that works the best. Sometimes we started with a couple and we've not done it. We say, okay, how can we help you? It's never the same. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like once they see our own scars and our wounds, it brings them to a place of, one, they feel safe opening up. But two, they feel that maybe there's some hope. Mm-hmm. And it puts them on a different spot. Yeah. And so you're doing, like you said, two things. Number one, you're giving them permission to say their truth, yeah. not just the varnished truth. <laughs> yeah. And then second of all, you're not just saying you can be healed by counseling and filter on your computer, mm-hmm. but you're showing them the path to the heart, Yeah, which is where all healing takes place. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go through all the motions and Jesus doesn't impact our heart, there's no long-lasting change. That's right. Mm -hmm. And how have you seen that impact couples? 
Well, early, early on on this, and, the, and we've got this in our book, but one couple that were really good friends with us, I mean, within a few months after me coming clean, this guy that we had been elders together, I mean, we were really good friends, right? I went and shared with him. I kept badgering him, and I finally met him. I shared it all. He went home, and he confessed his own, own adultery mm-hmm. that he was involved in right then. And when he came to our house to share with me what had happened, Priscilla walked in, and the guy shared with her, too, and he was on the floor hyperventilating, couldn't mm-hmm. hardly talk. And that was much the picture of me whenever I was trying to share with her. So there's this level of brokenness mm-hmm. that we've seen with men that when God can come in, when they can surrender to the point and allow God to take them to that place of, of deep repentance and brokenness, it's a special thing that God does in their heart, in their life, but it's also a special thing they do in their marriage because mm-hmm. we've not seen a lot of women walk away from a guy who's really broken like that. Yeah, it just takes one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it can be the wife too. You know, I yeah. think of so many of our Bible studies and spiritual things that we do, and like you described, we talk about the scripture. We give kind of like the edited version of our prayer request, but we don't get gut level honest with how yeah. mm-hmm. hurting we are, how broken we are, mm-hmm. how in bondage to sin we are. Yeah. And I think our communities and relationships would change if even just one person had the courage to do that. Yeah. Well, sometimes we'll describe what we've called a bondage cry. Mm-hmm. And so if you remember the children of Israel, so they're they're in Egypt for 400 years, 200 years probably in slavery. God knows they're in slavery. They're probably grumbling the whole time. But it wasn't until the end of that time that he said that the children of Israel sighed and cried out to God for help. And it said God heard. And then the scene shifts to Moses with him preparing the deliverer. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of places in the Psalms that says he hears our cry. And see, I think, Julie, for me, God heard my cry. So before I came clean, God heard my cry. And it was a cry of, I don't know what to do anymore, God. I completely give up. And he began preparing a path for me. And I think that sometimes when we're meeting with couples, we'll even talk about the bondage cry, how bad do you want to be free? Let's pray. And we've had some guys down on the floor screaming out for it and getting a lot of deliverance. I know this sounds kind of crazy and radical, right? But these are the things that have happened and it's taken us beyond our church growing up. It's taken us beyond our tradition. It's taken us beyond our dignity. Mm-hmm. Because I really do think that there's a place of letting go of your desire to be dignified, your desire to not be weird, mm-hmm. and saying, God, I've had enough of where I'm living, and I need something else, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Well, I'm really grateful that we got to have both Phil and Priscilla's perspective. Pay attention to the fact that Priscilla also needed to go through her own healing journey. And I think it's something betrayed spouses aren't always aware of. The truth is, when there's a betrayal of any kind, both spouses need healing to recover and for the marriage to have a good chance to be restored. As you heard, Phil and Priscilla have written a book. They have a podcast the Savage Marriage Podcast, and we've linked to that in our show notes. Hey, before you go, I want to remind you that Second Cup is coming up tomorrow, February 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. On this special member webinar, I'm going to share my thoughts on a theme I feel like we've been hitting on through many of the recent Java podcast episodes, and that's why do we have such superficial community? 
Why do we have such a superficial and surface relationship with God? And what can we do to change that? I'll also be answering questions about recent Java conversations I've had with Tim Ross, Jackie Hill Perry, and Michael Hendricks. And if you're a member and would like to attend Second Cup, you can sign up at the link in the show notes. If you're not a member, but you want to be there, there's a link to become a member in the show notes as well. As a member, you not only get access to Second Cup each month, but you also receive discounts for events, additional member-only resources, you build friendships through the Authentic Intimacy community, and gain access to the full Java with Julie archive. Like I said, you can find links to Second Cup and membership in those show notes. Well, my friend, that's all I have for today. And next week, we'll have a teaser ahead of Reclaim 2.0 with a live Q&A from Reclaim 2.0 featuring Dr. Michael Seitzma and Dr. Jennifer Degler. Now you don't want to miss it. Hey, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. 